Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 5th, 2014. This is episode 1401 of the Survival Podcast. And we're following up from a series that we began last week on chickens. I did two shows on chickens. I said if you had questions, email me, and lots of questions came in. Some really great ones came in, so I'm going to do a Q&A show on chickens. If there's enough questions, maybe we'll do another one a week or two from now, but I think this will put chickens to bed for a while anyway. Uh, before we uh, get into your questions, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor, the very first sponsor we picked up. January this year, I will look down and I will see in my notes on sponsors that they have been here six years. Six years. So we're at five years and eight months right now. How many podcasts last five years and eight months? Let alone a relationship with a sponsor that's heading for six years. It's pretty amazing And Safe Castle has all the stuff you need for your prepping, especially long-term storage food and ways to make your own food into long-term storage food, practical, tactical, and everything in between. Check them out today at safecastle.com. Uh, next up today, Survival Gear Bags. That's Kelly John Doe. He's been with us a long time, too. Honestly, Kelly John Doe has been with the Survival Podcast as a member of our audience longer than our relationship with Safe Castle. He just has only been a sponsor for about three years now. That's because he actually built survival gear bags up out of the TSP community. He was in the fulfillment industry and said, hey, maybe I can put together some group buys for people on the forum back when the forum had like, oh, 100 members. So he did that, and that worked out, and he developed a pretty good relationship with the community, and he thought, maybe I can do this for a business. So he put together survival gear bags. Today he and his family run survivalgearbags.com with great survival gear and great bags to put them in. Excellent service, excellent pricing. Shipping is always free, and members of our support brigade get an additional 10% off. Real quick on that, you know, Safe Castle Royal has a great discount program. It's $49, and you get discounts on everything pretty much for the rest of your life. You get that for free. So both our sponsors today do support the MSB. You may want to support the MSB by becoming a member. The discounts there are such that your membership will pay for itself if you're buying stuff from guns to gardens and everything in between. Silver and gold, we've got discounts on just about anything that the preparedness-minded individual is looking for. Check it out today. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Next up, let us discuss the year that was the episode. 1401. I have two for you today. The Great Val Shift. And a historian wars about, warns about history. I might want to read that one if I were you. A historian warns about history. You can go to tspwiki.com, look up the page 1400, or use the link in today's show notes, and you will find it, and you can read it. Put together by Alex Shrugged, who puts these awesome history segments together for us. Probably our top contributor at tspwiki.com. But why is that? Why are you not a contributor? Hey, you know more than you think you do. Get over to TSP Wiki and learn. And when you know something can be better or added or a page or content can be made, You can just add it. If you're not sure how to work a wiki, we've got a whole support section that tells you how to do that right at the homepage, tspwiki.com. Now to 1401, the great vowel shift. 
The middle English pronunciation will change radically beginning now. The average English speaker of 1400 will be practically incomprehensible to the English speaker of 1450. The long vowels are changing as people pronounce their vowels more up in the throat. No one knows what precipitated this sudden change, but modern vocalization begins at this time. My take by Alex Shrugged. When I was in, when I was reading the novel Timeline by Michael Crichton, the author made a point that no matter how well you, uh, well studied a scholar might be in the languages of the Middle Ages, such as Middle English and Octin, he could never be sure he was pronouncing the words correctly. The reason is because of the radical change in the pronunciation of vowels. It will act as a barrier to modern English speakers. There is a sense that one is coughing up phlegm. Personally, I can hear a difference between English speakers who pronounce a Hebrew word and Hebrew-speaking people who speak Hebrew down in their throat. The Yemenite Hebrew speakers are just insane when it comes to speaking deep down in the throat. Is The lesson learned here, don't get in a time machine and expect to be understood before 1450. That world no longer exists in sound. I think it's interesting, but I also think there's a modern lesson. And here's what it is. There are puritanical individuals, even today, not just the Puritans and the pilgrims and the religion, but puritanical individuals in all walks of life. And puritanical individuals particularly show up in words and dialects. And those people are not, not students of history. If you went back to 1900, you would be able to clearly understand what people are saying, but it would not sound like the English language of today. The Puritan says, we must preserve the English language. Hello, dumbass. The English language is an evolving, living thing, like all languages. And languages have been traditionally evolved by children. You want to get a look at this, you can look at a novel that's completely fictitious, though based on a lot of history. It's by a guy named Piers Anthony, and it's called Isle of Women, and you'll see some segments on how children evolve language. My research into history shows that to be true, and my observation of the present shows that to be true. If you think about it, all the new words, the new sayings, the new nuances were developed by children. Remember when you were a kid and people would say, hey, that's bad. And your parents went, duh, what? That's good. You know, bad means good, right? And so, and then today, kids are saying stuff, and you're like, what are they talking about? And when you're an old person and you try to catch on and say it, even though you say it right, you sound like an idiot to them. Because you're not saying it right, because you don't have quite the inflections and all. And the Puritan goes, these children are destroying the English language. No, the children have been involving the English language, dumbass, since it's existed. And the girl that the news people make fun of on, like, you know, the news shows with the nose ring and the pink hair that's tweeting and using all kinds of slang and jargon, yeah, some of those people will just be average people, but some of those people with the pink hair and the nose ring, with that, the kids of those newscasters will one day be going to that pink-haired girl to ask for venture capital investments because she's going to be a billionaire. And the language will evolve. And if you think you can hold a language static, you're a no student of history. My take by Jack Spierko. Now, getting into the main topic of today's show, your questions on chickens. First one is really more of a tip than a question. This is from Ryan. Ryan says, I don't think you mentioned chicken nipple waterers. I've had a small backyard flock for the past three years. After getting frustrated as hell with the water being fouled up, and needing constant changing, especially in the winter here in northern Illinois. 
I came across these little miracles. Just five-gallon bucket with four of them threaded into the holes drilled into the bottom. Lid closes tight on top so the water stays completely clean. Chickens figure out right out of the brooder. Uh, chickens figure it out right out of the brooder. In winter, I added an aquarium heater supplemented with a heat lamp pointing at it on z below zero nights. You can buy them pre-made on Amazon or save a ton of money and just buy the nipples and the buckets separately. Um, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I should have mentioned that we use them. We have five-gallon buckets hanging in the uh, in the coop. An aquarium heater is a brilliant, simple idea. Uh, one of those ones I go, duh, Jack, why didn't you think of it? I use in my stock tanks a little floating 250-watt heater. And in a 50-gallon stock tank, it's all you need. And they have a built-in thermostat. And when the water gets to 35 degrees, it comes on. And when the water temperature hits 45 degrees, it shuts off. So it's very energy efficient. I can definitely see how a small aquarium heater turned down to its lowest setting stuck in a five-gallon bucket would work well to keep a five-gallon bucket uh, from freezing up on those cold nights. I still wonder, I guess that's why you have the heat lamp. We often had the case with our chicken nipples where the bucket water would not be frozen. You could open it up, look in there, and there's water in there. But the little metal part of the nipple gets colder, and the nipple itself would freeze up. So the chickens couldn't get the water to come out. Fortunately, like I said, we use the stock tanks with the uh, with the heaters. I'll put a link to both the chicken nipples and the heaters uh, for you in the show notes today because that's a great tip. I'll also tell you this. Last year, I went to Amazon. Not Amazon.com. I went to Tractor Supply for some stuff, and I told the manager there about chicken nipples, and he looked at me like I had an elephant, small elephant trunk coming out of my left ear or something like that. And I explained it. He kind of looked at me like, oh, I don't really understand. So I realized I was talking to the wrong manager. And then the next time I was in there, there was a different manager in there. And this guy was great. He was like, what are you doing? Get over there. There's a customer waiting there. And he was just awesome. He was like pleasant, but he was on everybody's ass to like be pleasant and take care of customers. And like, hey, look, there's like five people in line. You see that? You're supposed to be on the other register. Go open it. That kind of guy. And I went, this is my guy. So after he, he blasted everybody's ass positively... Uh, I said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? He said, yeah, man, what can I do for you? So I tell him what chicken nipples are, and he's like, that sounds pretty cool. And now at least that tractor supply has them in the poultry section. They're on little cards. You know, I think you get like five or six per card. Uh, so they're becoming more common, and they're just a little red thing with a metal deal that you screw into anything, plastic, and the chickens tap on them and water comes out. How I got my birds to use them, when they were adult birds who had never seen one, they didn't come out of the brooder right to them. Um, what I did is I took their water away about 6 o'clock at night. They had no water from 6 o'clock night till the morning. In the morning when they came out, there was no stock tanks they could get to. There was no regular waters. There was no nothing. It was just this bucket with these red things. So they're all looking around, and I just started tapping it, tapping it, tapping it, making water come out of it. Finally, one of them came over and drank a little bit, and that was it. It was on. And it took one day of making them a little bit thirsty. Don't do this when it's really hot out. And so if you have an adult flock and you want to put them on it, that's the recommended way, and I can tell you that it does work. One more quick thing before we move on from the chicken nipples is um, I wanted to point out there's a lot of creative uses for these beyond just a five-gallon bucket. Those work really good in tractors and for small flocks. I've seen people do things like this. Take like a 50-gallon tough-made um, 
what do you call it, like garbage can, and, and set it somewhere that can easily be filled, but not try to hang it where the birds can drink directly from it, and plumb a line from it to like a piece of four-inch PVC pipe all the way along a back of a, of a large chicken coop, and every six inches put a nipple in that pipe and just PVC end cap and a thing in, and then that way as they drink the water, the gravity feeds down and you can fill it up you know, once every two or three weeks, even with a large flock. Um, you do want to look at keeping that water fresh, but one of the things you can do to keep that water fresh is the little 3% hydrogen peroxide bottles you get from the store. Dump about a quarter of a bottle of that into about 50 gallons uh, about once every three or four weeks, which is pennies, and you'll never have an algae problem, especially if you've got a dark thing to begin with to keep the light down on it. And I've seen people do it with just five or six big pieces of PVC pipe as, as your reserve and then plumb down to a smaller piece of PVC pipe. It's many ways to use these chicken nipples. They're just a great, great tool. Uh, even though they call them chicken nipples as well, they work for all livestock. So they are like, for instance, I don't let my ducks, when they're put away at night in their little yard with their duck house, have water there. Because they just make a complete shit mess out of any water they get near. So what we do is we hang for them a water bucket there. That way they can get water to drink, but they can't crap things up and make everything a disgusting, muddy mess, which is the... Pretty much the agenda of all ducks is to make everything a crappy, muddy mess. Let's take another one. Uh, next one's from James, actually Cody. Cody says, weird, different names. I don't know. There's multiple names in this email. Anyway, what age is, ex is safe to expect my chickens to lay? I have four hens, two buff Orpingtons, and two Rhode Island Reds. They're five weeks old in, they were five weeks old in November of 2013. Here in August 2014, I have not received an egg. There being food made for laying increase, but nothing. Any advice? I really need help. Something's wrong with your birds, Cody. That's not right. Um, I'm almost wondering if you have roosters. Um, November 2013, something's wrong. I don't know if these... The odds that all four have a physical problem that's identical that would prevent them from laying eggs is low, like in passion or something like that. Um, it is possible that you put them on a heavy layer ration when they were young, really young, like let's say six weeks. And sometimes that can cause birds to lay less efficiently or even cause them not to lay. If they get too much calcium before they're ready to produce eggs. So that's possible, but not likely. I don't really know what's going on here. The answer is six months, and it's an average. Some birds will lay at five months, some birds will lay at seven. Big birds like buff Orpingtons and rocks and things like that and Jersey Giants and all generally will start laying a little past six months, at least heavily. And Rhode Island Reds and your Rhode Island Reds, they call a large breed, but I consider Rhode Island bred a medium breed. Your medium breeds, your smaller breeds of chickens generally will start laying somewhere between five and six months. Sometimes they'll lay a little bit younger or a little bit older, but a lot of times when they do, it's intermittent and they're smallish eggs. And then by the time they come into that prime, they lay much bigger eggs. So your best production out of a chicken should be six months to one year of age. So when we look at November being when you got these guys as little puffballs, they should have been cranking them out starting in May. 
So you should have got June, July, and August now with, with heavy um, egg production out of these birds, an average of five to six eggs a week per bird. Your Orpington's more in the five range, and your Rhode Island Red's more in the six range. Um, the only thing I can think of is that you could possibly be feeding them too much non-layer ration, like too much other stuff that's lowering the protein below 16%. But even then, I mean, these guys should pop out an egg or two. Like if they were laying poorly, I'd look at it being dietary. Something's just not right. Um, if they have long tail feathers and little pointy things on their legs, they're roosters. Um, I, I, I doubt that that's the case, but it's, it's at least possible. Uh, I don't know. Uh, this is what I'm going to throw to the audience. Have you ever seen hens just not lay? And not a hen. Like, you can get a barren hen. I mean, just like there's barren people, there's barren hens. But two buffs and two Rhode Island Reds. And Rhode Island Reds are probably the best heritage breed layer that there is. If you want a bird that you can breed true to type, has a long history of, of working with men, mankind, um, is not a hybrid, and just will lay and lay and lay, and will live in the north and the south, the east and the west, and do well as long as you give it what it needs. The Rhode Island Red is the bird. So I, I don't know. I really have a hard time telling you what's going on here. Again, unless maybe when they were very little chicks, you put them on a heavy layer ration when they were like, you know, four, six weeks old and they've been on that ever since. That can cause some issues, but man, I don't, I, I, I've still never heard of it like just like not laying at all. So audience, help me out with this one. What's going on? Cody, dude, are they roosters? Let me know in the comments section. Oh. We're going to like pause right here in the middle of the show and do something we were supposed to do yesterday. Um, in fact, we're going to do two things I had planned for the beginning of today's show. One is we rewind to episode 1400. If you want to comment on this, you have to do it in the uh, the 1400 episode, not 1401, which is today. So go to the blog, look up 1400. Uh, Conflicted Monday. I put it in the notes yesterday, but I didn't read it. Let me start out with last week's Conflicted Monday. This is kind of a break, like a like a special alert in the middle of the show, right? So last week's Conflicted Monday scenario, which is the card game Conflicted, where people draw a card in a group, and they read the card, they say what they would do. Everybody in the group says what they would do. The person that drew the card says one more time their final thoughts, and then everybody else in the group writes down a score from 1 to 3, and whoever has the highest score at the end of X many, however many rounds you want to play wins. And the scenario is it is the end of the world as we know it. Dogs and cats are living together and having puppy kittens. The zombies are raining from the sky. It is as bad as it gets. It is the apocalypse. That is the scenario you're in when you answer these questions. Last week's scenario, a large gang of traveling looters captured you and your family from your retreat. They drove 150 miles from your location, sold you and your family off at a trading post. A good Samaritan paid the price for you and set you all free. However, he has no desire to help you any further. It's time to start over from nothing in the post-apocalyptic world. How would you go about securing short-term and long-term survival of you and your family? Lots of great answers, many that are similar to what I'm going to say. You have to handle this like being lost in the wilderness. You have to, what you have to do right away is stop, go to somewhere where you're not likely to be grabbed and resold into slavery, someplace with some relative safety, and stop and evaluate your situation. 
your six primary survival needs, food, water, shelter, energy, security, and health and sanitation. How are you going to procure them? What are you going to do? And who has the greatest need in your group? What strengths do you guys have? What are your weaknesses? What are your tools? You're in scavenging mode. You, you can't even become like, like people say, oh, I'll just become a raider. You can't. You don't have shit. You're going to raid with a sharp stick while everybody's armed with sawed-off shotguns and ARs? So you have to start trying to find people that would be interested in working with you, even though you have nothing except your skill set. And you have to decide, do I want to travel home or do I want to stay put or do I want to make for another location? Odds are, even in a complete breakdown, that there'd be some place where society was beginning to rebuild, and it might be the only place you can go to try to look for barter for your, your time and your skills and your labor, because that's all you have at this point. Scavenging, you're not going to have much to scavenge. It's all been scavenged in this scenario. Um, going home, not maybe worth it. First of all, your location's known by people who captured you. Now, if they're traveling through, maybe they're not going back, but there's probably nothing left. Assholes that do this kind of thing probably burnt down whatever you they did leave behind. So unless there's people back there that you think could help you, 150-mile trip's probably not worth it. If you can scavenge enough, get enough material and food and supplies to make the trip, and you have reason to believe there are people that would work with you back there, then it may be worth going back there. But the first step is assessment. Today's scenario, actually yesterday's scenario that we're laid on, is ambushing an equal force fighting against you an intelligent move Or does it make you less than an honorable adversary? Again, now you're thinking, you've got to think about this. You're in a hostile, apocalyptic world now. You're ambushing an equal force. Is that intelligent or does it make you less than honorable adversary? For the scenario, we will assume that this force you're ambushing is not somebody whose shit you want to take, that they are in fact the enemy and they pose a threat to you. Let's 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 look at the scenario that way. You're not a bunch. You're not asking whether it's right to kill people to take their stuff. This is an opposing force who represents a serious threat to your safety. Is ambushing them honorable or dishonorable as a battle tactic? All right. Now the other thing I forgot about. Mark Shepard's doing something really cool. Mark Shepard, the guy that does restoration agriculture, New Forest Farm up in Wisconsin, chestnuts. Cows, pigs, apples, plums, permaculture farm, 100 acres. Guy I want to grow up to be like. Permaethos farm, we're trying to make like what Mark's doing. Awesome guy. He's starting up a cider label. Yep, a cider label. Like, like a beer label, except it's hard cider. And he's got an Indiegogo campaign, and I think it's fabulous. Uh, someone sent it to me today. Uh, the campaign is called Strong Ecology and Economy Through Strong Drink. He has a lot of different uh, ways that you can support, from a dollar all the way up to $5,000, and, and it just all kinds of stuff in between. Uh, I personally backed him today for $250. Um, I invite you to go by and look at the project summary, look at the video, look what Mark's trying to do. He's trying to create really not just his label, but a whole new industry. There's some cider stuff out there, woodchuck and stuff like Angry Orchard and all. Some of it's not bad. But craft cider is a whole emerging industry. And it involves growing apples in a way that we don't have to spray them and make everything toxic. And yes, this works with permaculture perfectly. And it can be done all over the country. 
So if we can have one guy be a success, I think that we can see lots of people become successful in it. So I don't back every Indiegogo and Kickstarter campaign that's in permaculture because I think, frankly, at this point, there's too many. Uh, everybody that wants to do anything, instead of trying to do it first, they come and say, hey, give me money so I can do it. Uh, Mark has proven he is the best example there is in the country of success in permaculture on a farm. He does it for a living, and I believe he has the horsepower to get this done with a little bit of help. I'm backing him. I'm asking you to consider it. I will put a link in today's show notes. If you happen to ping him in some way and let him know that you backed him, and because uh, TSP community is is doing that and Jack has asked you to do so, that would be even cooler. I'd like to develop a relationship very much with Mark um, because I think he'd be a strong ally. I did meet him briefly in California, but it was very brief. We were both very busy. He is going to be on TSP very, very soon, though. If you have questions for Mark Shepard, send them to me. Jack at the survival podcast.com. Put question for Mark in the subject line. Send me your questions. I will blend as many of them as possible into the interview. Now, back to the chicken QA show. Before we go on to the next one, just real quick rewind to Cody with his not laying eggs. I've done the math and you're looking at nine months. If November means November 1st, right? If November means like the end of November, Thanksgiving time you got these birds, and we're at the beginning of August, seven-ish months, eight-ish months. They should be laying, but they might just need a little bit more time. They might have just developed a little bit more slowly. Um, keep feeding them a good ration. Make sure you're not getting too much you know, treats and junk. Um, keep the scratch to a minimum and let us know if that changes. Also... The one other thing I can think of is they are laying and you don't know where. If these birds have freedom, they may have decided they don't like your nice nesting box and they may be laying under a car or under a bush. Confine them for a couple days to where if they lay, you're going to find the eggs and let us know what happens. Next one is... All right, this is a complicated one as well. Um... I'm not the chicken whisperer, guys, but I'll do my best. After listening to your recent episode on chickens and hearing you say to let you know if we had any more chicken questions, I want to ask you about a weird situation. I have 20 hens and a rooster. The rooster is very good to the hens and shows them where the food is and everything. I have one particular hen I introduced to the flock six months ago. She never really fit in and is at the bottom of the pecking order. All the hens won't even let her eat, and surprisingly, neither will the rooster. I've never had a rooster not allow one of the hens to eat. She usually takes off and flees the coop and runs. She is small to squeeze through the fence as soon as I let her out of the coop in the morning. What's causing this? I saw the rooster mount her the other day, so that's not a problem. I assumed it was because she didn't use to let him mate with her. I just don't know what's going on. She seems terrified to be with my flock. Ideas. Um, trying to be my the best chicken psychologist I can, I think it may have the most to do with the fact that when you introduce this bird, you introduced a bird instead of multiple birds. This made her stand out as a new bird. Where if you'd introduced four birds, the, the wrath of the flock and the pecking order submission is spread out over multiple birds instead of targeted to one. Probably because of this full onslaught of 20 birds that are like, we hate you, she doesn't act normal, so they won't treat her normal. So her, uh, way of dealing with this is, leaving the flock and getting the hell away from everybody so that she won't be picked on. And to be honest with you, it's probably time to turn that bird into um, coca bin or chicken soup. Um, it's just not fair to her to be in that situation. And it's a chicken. It's not a dog, right? It's not a kid. 
It's a chicken. Chicken serve multiple purposes, meat and eggs. This one probably, you should just go, this bird's not working out. I had this issue with one of my two Faomi hens. And I, I'm really not sure what made, and it was the rooster that hated her. The rooster just hated her. And he would beat her, and he would breed her, and after he would breed her, he would just like beat the hell out of her while she sat there submissively. And then as soon as he stopped, she would just run away. And there was another one, her twin sister, basically, that he just treated like all the other hens. And I don't know why this was. And my guess with my bird was that when we got these Faomis, um, there was there was eight on a straight run. And I thought I'd get, you know, a rooster or two. I got four roosters and two hens. And I didn't buy, on purpose, any other roosters. Upgrade the Rhode Island Red rooster was supposed to be a Rhode Island Red pullet, and he turned out to be a rooster. Well, as these birds were coming up in juvenile, Faomis developed very, very quickly. And they become very mature sexually. They start they start crowing at like three to four weeks of age. So the Faomi cockerels developed very quickly, and it became like a gang of six. And I'm like, well, I'm going to have to thin them out, but... I'd like them to get bigger because they're a small bird to begin with. An adult Faomi roosters five pounds if it's soaking wet. So I didn't want to I didn't want to butcher them too young. And since they were all the roosters and they were all together, and I didn't think I had any other roosters, I thought I didn't have a problem. One of the the Rhode Island Reds one day disappeared, and it was upgrade the rooster who we didn't know was a rooster yet because the mind sees what it expects, and he wasn't showing that much. He disappeared. Several days later, my wife's like, I think there's a chicken in the chicken house. And I said, well, that's where they go. She goes, no, no, no. I don't see one, but I hear one. Please just tell me what you're trying to say. The one that disappeared, I think he's in the floor. Okay, we'll go see if she's in the floor. So I go out and I bang on the floor and I hear chicken sounds. Huh. He's in the floor. Floor I just built for the damn things. So I have to tear up my floor that I just built. I don't know how the hell he managed to get in there, but there's this chicken down there. I reach in to get it, and it bites the shit out of me. I've never been bitten like this by a chicken. The chicken's just freaked out. Now, I still have a scar from a chicken bite. Crazy. Um, I realize it's been in the heat in the summer in this floor for days. So I put a bowl of water and a bowl of food, and the head's coming out and drinking water and eating. Yank it out. When I finally got away where I could get in without it biting the shit out of me, get him by his feet and pull him out. And I look at it, and I look at the, the, the iridescence starting to come into the, the feathers, and I go, this is a rooster. That's why they're attacking him. So I took him away from the coop for a day, taught him to catch grasshoppers, and he had a good day. That night I took the Faomis, put them in a chicken tractor right in front of him, and then a day later I slaughtered them. And I, I brought him over and set him to watch them getting slaughtered. He was my buddy. He's the best rooster I've ever had now. As the two other families came up, he targeted the one with just this ruthless hatred. And my feeling was maybe in his head, he just saw her as an extension of these birds that had tormented him so much growing up. I don't know. But what I'll tell you happened is, I didn't want to kill these birds. Because a Faomi bird is small, and but they lay eggs every day. So I put off what I'm recommending you do, and I shouldn't have, and eventually she disappeared. I don't think she was got by a predator initially. I think what happened is she was so tormented 
she escaped into the woods behind our property and then probably couldn't get back at night and was probably taken by a predator then. So I'm going to tell you, if they just won't accept her, I would, I would stew pot her. And the next time you try an introduction, I would try to do at least four or six birds on an introduction at a time when you know a certain time out you're going to be culling due to egg drop in production. I've not seen this, and if anybody else has, I'd like your information on it. But I, I think the most likely reason is that you put one bird in there by itself, and that made it such a target to such a large flock that they just never let go of, you're the new girl. And um, that's that's my best guess there. All right, so this one comes from Lisa. Lisa from Indiana here. Do you recommend washing your eggs before selling them or leaving them unwashed? We currently have a flock of 44 hens and one rooster. That's a busy rooster. <laughs> that rooster's got a lot of work, man. That's, that flock could easily handle too. Anyway, and they have just recently started laying eggs. We're trying to build a customer base to sell them and are having trouble deciding whether to wash or not. We've been leaving them unwashed so far and explaining the benefits to the buyer, but sometimes they get pretty gross looking from poo, yolks, from other eggs that got broken, etc. So we ask the customer what they prefer or just do it one way or the other. I'm sure some people are pretty put off by dirty eggs. Others might not mind so much. My thought is to wait until right before you sell them, then wash Uh, that way they stay as fresh as possible and look nice and pretty when sold. Thoughts, Lisa. Um, this is something we've already considered for ourselves because some of the eggs, you know, they come out with a little blood on them because the bird had a hard day. Um, sometimes they have a little poo on them. Uh, sometimes they look really great. Let's start out with why you wouldn't wash an egg in the first place. I mean, the eggs that come from the store are all washed and shiny and perfect and sterilized, sanitized, dead. This is what they do. When they get the chicken eggs for the store, they go through a washing machine and they wash the shit out of them. And then it's very dangerous for that egg. That egg can get all kinds of infections at that point. So it's sterilized. And then it's dead. And then there's nothing to infect it. So you can eat it and not die. Alright? God, the universe, the spirit of creation, however you want to define it for yourself, is smart enough to understand that we need to protect the chicken egg without it being washed because there's no one to wash the egg while the little chicken develops. So there's a, there's a coating on the egg. It lets the egg breathe, but it prevents anything nasty from getting in. I mean, it can, it can have poo on it, and none of the, 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 the toxins from it can get in the egg. When you wash the egg, you remove that coating... And you actually push toxins and bacteria into the egg. It's actually much safer to not wash the egg. But then you have a customer that says, huh, that doesn't look good. I don't want that. How do you handle that? I think the first thing we got to do is try to minimize how the eggs look and what gets on them in the first place. So the first thing that I would say is your egg boxes should be on the opposite side of the coop from your roost, so there's not poo raining down on them. Your egg boxes should never be as high as your highest or even your highest two levels of roost. That will prevent the chickens from choosing the egg boxes as a place to roost and sit. The next thing I would say is your egg boxes, it makes a lot of sense to, to design them so that when they're covered on top, the cover comes out a little bit, so if they do go on top and shit... It goes on, it doesn't get into the box. That's the next thing. And to close off the box where the chicken has to kind of crawl in the hole so it can't just like 
easily get in that leg. There's some privacy there. That'll make it much more likely for the chicken to actually lay in the box where you want it to. The next thing is change your box bedding daily, or at least every other day. Because they will poo in there while they're laying eggs and while they're doing other stuff. So if there's less sitting in there for the egg to land on, less of it's going to stick to the egg. So that right, those things right there will lessen the number of eggs that come out looking off. The next thing I would say is if the egg has a little spot on it or two that look a little bit off-putting, that what you can do is get a green pad or a sponge with like the, 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 the abrasive side on it And with no water, just buff the spot, not the rest of the egg. This will remove the coating where you buffed it, but not the entire coating. And water is the worst for ruining the egg and causing things to get into the egg. If you are going to use water or fluid of any kind, then it should be warmer than the egg. The colder it is, the more it goes in. And the greater the damage that it's done. But... If you're going to wash them at all, I would say start first with the education of the customer and explain to them that this stuff on the egg is not bad and not dangerous. And if you wash it, you actually push it in the egg. And that that's what they do with commercial eggs that you don't want. That's why you're buying from me. And what they do is they sterilize it after that happens. So first they infect your egg with bacteria, then they sterilize it. And then you need to sterilize dead egg. That's why my eggs taste better than the eggs you get from the store. Okay. The next thing is, if you were going to divide your eggs between the customers that want them washed and not, and you have one or two customers that want clean eggs, select the cleanest eggs that aren't washed for that customer. Now, the problem is you might end up with a lot more percentage of the eggs to your other customers having some stuff on them. But if you can educate that customer that this is not a problem, then you're better off. Last resort would be exactly what you said, wash the eggs for the pain in the ass customers. But I, if, unless you really have a hard time getting customers, you might be better off just telling the customer, listen, the safest way to do this is not to wash these eggs. The best way to keep them fresh is not to wash these eggs. And I am not comfortable giving you an egg that I know has had bacteria forced into it. So unless you're going to eat the shells, there's no problem with this egg the way that it is. And I'm recommending that you simply practice good hygiene and cook these eggs appropriately and not worry about it. I would say this. If you have an egg that has some that really looks off, I wouldn't give that to a customer. I think it's perfectly safe, but those would be... So the other thing I might do is reserve the eggs that have the most displeasing appearance for my personal use, which is traditionally how farms have always run. You keep the good eating, but not so good looking produce for internal use. You take the big plump chicken and sell it to market, and you use your coal birds for personal use. So when you go into that commercial aspect, there is a certain expectation of the customer And balancing that often is you take the stuff that is just as good tasting but looks a little less for your own use. Uh, that is a very traditional way farms have been run. Uh, on, the, on the washing, the last thing I'd recommend, though, is if you really need to wash them uh, to make your customers happy, that there's a product called Mana Pro Egg Cleanser. And 
it is supposed to not destroy the bloom that protects the egg and it's made with enzymes. I don't know if it actually does what it claims. Um, but the people that I've talked to that have used it seem pretty happy with it. And the people that use it that seem the happiest with it don't scrub the egg. They, they, they mix this with warm water and they use a rat, a little cloth and they just wipe off the, the offending looking spots on the egg. They don't really scrub it hard. They might not get it all off, but it looks a lot better. Because we've all seen that, that have chickens, you know, chicken eggs that have a swirl of either blood or, 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 or some excrement from the bird's last movement on it. And it, it is off-putting to a customer. Um, that's probably, without being able to attest on whether or not it does what it claims, the, the best recommendation I can give you if you have to wash. This one comes from Brad. Brad says, are there any kind of chicken scraps other than onion and garlic and citrus, garden scraps, or other plant material to avoid offering chickens? For example, we know that parts of the potato plant are toxic to humans. I was just wondering if there are other commonly grown species that the chicken shouldn't be offered. Thanks, Brad. Um, I don't think you can probably kill a chicken by giving it anything because I don't think it'll eat it if it, if it doesn't like it. And if it does, and if it's toxic to the chicken, the chicken's probably not going to eat it. The main reason we don't give onions, garlic, and citrus to chickens is not so much because it's bad for them, as they won't eat it. Um, yes, the green part of a potato plant and tomato plant and other members of the nightshade family can be toxic, but I've had chickens range through gardens plenty of times that have, you know, potatoes or tomatoes, you know, at the end of the cycle where you go ahead and let the bird go through, and they just don't eat that. Um, I think the problem would end up where you take something that has toxic components, starve the chicken for all green matter so it's got nothing but crumbles and the one thing and feed it nothing but that one thing. Because I think sooner or later it might start eating something that it otherwise wouldn't. But I think in general, if you can eat it, they can eat it. And if you can eat it and, and, and they're not going to eat it, you're not going to hurt them with it, they're just not going to eat it. So I would, I would take more of that approach when it comes to kitchen scraps. Would I eat this if it was not garbage or being discarded for some other reason? And if the answer is I would eat it, then, then they can eat it too. When it comes to like offering them weed pullings and stuff like that, I've just never heard of anybody offering a chicken anything that was toxic to the chicken and the chicken ate it and died. Um, I'll put it this way. If you've hunted, you've probably, especially a deer hunter that hunts on stand, you've probably seen way more deer in your life than you've ever shot. You see deer, it's not a big enough deer, whatever. And you watch deer in the woods. I have seen many things in the woods that are toxic and will kill you dead. I've never seen a deer run up, eat something, and fall over and die. Animals have an intrinsic intelligence and, and overall know what not, not to eat. I do think we have to be careful, though, on some levels with certain toxic plants and all in chickens um, because the chicken does have a bird brain. And they are not the brightest creatures. And anybody that's ever watched them knows that part of the entertainment is how stupid they really are. Yet I've never seen a chicken eat anything that could kill it. You know, would I plant oleanders around my chicken run? where the leaves stick through, and I know they're going to take it down to the ground, and the only thing that they're likely to see green around the chicken coop is this oleander. No, oleander's highly toxic, and if they're starved for green matter, they may eat some of it. If I had oleander on my property, would I worry a chicken is going to eat it? No, just to kind of put it in perspective. I'm not afraid that my chickens will eat oleander or any other toxic thing that's toxic to them, as long as they have other things to choose from. But I think you can kill an animal 
with kindness, so to speak, by giving it something toxic in, in excess and to the exclusion of other things or to the exclusion of other choice. So I think that's where you got to be careful. But in general, if you eat it, it's safe for them. Uh, is there a chance you might have a chicken that's allergic to something? Sure. The one place I can remember somebody telling me about chickens eating something and dying, uh, and I don't remember if it was John Dowie or somebody else, but somebody came to one of the events here, said that his wife gave the chicken, chickens a huge pot of beans, like baked mush beans, you know, almost like, almost like refried, but they weren't refried. And then a couple of the chickens did die. And it's probably because they like impacted themselves or something like that. So again, though, I think that is an excess amount of a single thing. We feed our chickens, you know, leftover beans frequently. If we go to a Mexican restaurant, we generally, because we're mostly paleo, don't eat beans or we'll eat one or two forkfuls of beans and maybe one or two forkfuls of rice. We bring that home for our chickens, but it's not in a big giant slough, right? We spread it out and they're getting it with other things and I've never had a problem. So I think there might be the case that you could feed chickens something that's really pasty or thick like that in excess and they gorge themselves on it and they could hurt themselves. So I think it's about spreading it out, giving them a variety, and not giving them a huge amount of any one thing. But otherwise, if you'd eat it, they could eat it. Okay, the next one's an interesting question. It's not one I've seen before. Uh, hey, Jack, I'm breeding a, a buff Orpington rooster to a Rhode Island red. Uh, buff Orpington and, and uh, barred rocks right now to see if I can get a good dual-purpose bird. So I'll let you know how I make out. So he's got a, a, a buff orp rooster and some Rhode Island Reds and some Barred Rocks. So he's crossing those. And let's see what the prodigy is and what are our roosters or young cockerels like as meat birds and what kind of a layer do I get. But here's the question. If I breed the rooster back to the F1 hybrid and do that for eight generations, will I get a 100% buff Orpington hen? I'm not clear on the results with line breeding. Great show. I really enjoyed it. So this was a comment on the blog I took as a question for this show. So what he's saying is I got a buff Orpington rooster. I brood the buff to a Rhode Island red hen. I get a bird that's effectively 50-50. Now, let's say I eat the roosters that come out of that, the cockerels, and I take my pullets and I grow them up. And as they grow up, I breed it back to the same buff Orpington. Or a different, it doesn't really matter. At some point, you really want to get outside of the box a little bit and get a new rooster in or a different rooster for breeding. And I breed the, the half-breed back to the buff. What do I have then? Well, I, I now have a bird that is 66% buff Orbington and 44% Rhode Island Red, right, um, at that point. And as I keep doing that, I keep getting more and more buff Orbington genetics and less and less Rhode Island Red genetics, if that makes sense. And the 66% might throw people. Um, we've basically broke it into thirds at that point, where the genetics are coming from. One third, one third, one third. That's why it's not 75-25. It doesn't evenly split. And it slowly ratchets up. So then the question is, if I do this for eight generations, will I prove back out and end up with a bird that's basically a buff Orpington? I think you will visually... And from most characteristics. And remember that all of these birds go back to jungle fowl out of Asia. And all of them were bred out to continuously produce certain type. But will you ever purge all Rhode Island red genetics or all barred rock genetics back breeding to a single species like Buff Orpington where you started out? 
I'd say no, and here's why. Let's say that you're standing 10 feet away from a wall, and you move 50% of the distance from where you are to the wall. Now you're 5 feet away from the wall. Now you go 50% again, you're 2.5 feet from the wall. You're very, very close to the wall. Now you go in half again, right? What, 1.125? And then you keep doing that. But you can do that infinitely. And as long as you ever move half the distance, you effectively will never get to the wall. Now, practically, this is impractical, right? There's a point at which your body cannot occupy that type of spatial distance, and you're touching the freaking wall with, if nothing else, your nose. Um, and it happens pretty quickly if we're, if we're having it at this type of a distance. But when it comes to genetics, and, and you're cutting pieces out, There, there's still the carrying of a lot of the genetics. And you could eventually prove that bird out to be a buff Orpington that anybody would look at and see a buff Orpington. But I doubt if genetic testing were done that it would be impossible to detect some genetics from another line in there. And I would doubt that most of our birds that are, you know, Rhode Island Reds, buff Orpington, barred rocks, somewhere back, far enough back, don't have some crossbreeding in them. And I don't think it's that big a deal. I think the question really is more useful to look at it this way. How far do I take the bird toward one parent type before I optimize the cross? And do I lose the, the gain of the hybrid quickly? And how far do I have to go back to either come up with something better or get back to par with production? In other words, if I cross a Rhode Island Red and a Buff Orvington, and I get a bird that's a really great dual-purpose bird. And you might. I don't know. It seems like such an obvious thing that if it was a really great meat bird and that prodigy was something really cool, that it would have been done already uh, and be marketing. But, hey, that's part of being a homesteader. You can try shit and see what happens. But let's say that bird was awesome. Let's say I get a big plump butt like the Buff Orpington, and I get egg production like the Rhode Island Red, and I keep a lot of the buff, buff size, and I get a great dual-purpose bird. If I breed that bird back to the buff, or I take it the other way around, and I take the 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 the, the hands out of that, right? Um, let's say I take a, a, a 50% Rhode Island Red, 50% buff, and breed that to a Rhode Island Red rooster, and go into that, that next generation, that F2 generation, going to one side or the other of the cross, and going 66% either side, that hybridization may result in a bird that's not really better than the hybrid or either of the parents. If I continue that headed back, do I ever reach a point where I get something that's really, really cool? I don't know. You have to try. That's what it comes down to, is you, is you try. Another thing that we can do, though, let's say we breed Rhode Island Reds to Buff Orpingtons, and we get a bird that's really, really cool. Now, what we can do is do that again, hopefully from a different set of parent stock to put genetic diversity in. So I, I, and I end up with birds, and I take roosters and hens of that cross and those birds I breed now what's going to happen in my F2 generation is I'm going to get a lot of birds that don't quite have all the characteristics of their parents and this is, gets complicated how do you separate, how do you know who's laying how do you know who's doing what but if I select from that group and hopefully maybe have another group from another group of parent stock And I select my best layers, my birds that look the most like their parents of the original cross, and my biggest roosters out of that, and I cross them into an F4 generation. 
and I keep crossing them back to each other, and I keep breeding them to look like the first cross, the F1 hybrid. Eventually, I can prove out the hybrid's genetics and come up with a new breed, which is, that's practically useful, all right? Taking a bird that started out as a buff Orpington back to a buff Orpington, there's a point at which, why don't you just stick with buff Orpingtons? There's only so many times we can back cross it before, you know, are we really getting anything valuable? I'm going to back cross my Rhode Island Red cross to White Leghorn, which is a Tetra tint, one more time. So I'm going to an F4 generation. So now I'm down to a point where I'm like at 15% Leghorn and 85% Rhode Island Red. That's not exact, but somewhere in the neighborhood. Just see what the bird does. But if I keep going at that point, well, sooner or later, you know, you get back to Rhode Island Red. But I am almost tempted to keep doing it because these birds are white. Male and female are both white. Like how, so that's just curiosity. How practical will the bird be? I don't know. But my, my question now is, how many times do I have to breed that bird back to the Rhode Island red before its, its feathers turn white? And, and these birds that are now two times red back, will they lay a brown egg or a white egg? And if they lay a white egg this time, how many times do I have to breed them before they start laying a brown egg? I don't know. So that's interesting. But proving out toward a type is more about taking your two hybrids, breeding them together, and, and then saving the offspring and backbreeding the offspring to prove out the type, the new type, not to go back to the old type. If that's, uh, I'm not a master geneticist, but as someone that did a lot of breeding with snakes uh, at one time, I can tell you that's where the, that's where the developing the new strain is. When you get a, a, a genetic trait to an animal, and with snakes you're going more with the, the, the appearance than the characteristics. Everybody wants something that looks cool, right? You got genotype and phenotype. So the, the genotype is the genetic type underneath. The phenotype is the outward appearance. And the two are not always as related as you would think. But when you find a phenotype that's supported by a genotype, like let's say an animal with a certain type of stripe in the snake world, you might have to breed the shit out of that animal if it's a recessive trait and then backbreed the offspring to that animal a bunch of times to get one that shows up with that trait again. And then you've got two with expressing that trait. And then if you breed them, you should get a significant number of offspring that express it. And sometimes you get lucky and if it's a it's the right type of a trait, a hundred percent of the offspring of two displaying it will produce it. And once you've got that, then you can create a whole new line. It's kind of sort of what you're doing with chickens too. If you want to create a new chicken, a new breed. And I think that's more interesting than taking an animal back to where it came from. Let's take another one. Uh, next one is from Ken. Ken says in a fixed coop, dual run setup. So I've got a coop, I've got two runs on two different sides of the coop, and I can control which side they get out to. Is it possible in one of the runs to raise up a feed crop of legumes, grains, and greens to supplement the chicken's feed diet? If so, how would you envision a rotation schedule for three to five birds, and what sort of cover crops? Background, upstate New York, medium suburban lot, solid zone six, plenty of water, decent soil base, chicken friendly, uh, no rooster town, Friendly neighbors, uh, been on a roll since I started listening to you rock on. Ken. Okay, so yes, and it all has to do with how big the runs are. If the runs are really, really big, you might actually want to cut two runs into four. But probably not. 
you got to look at your time to production for these birds if you're planting a new crop for them. Fastest thing to big leaf out, buckwheat in warm weather, um, four weeks, birds will eat it. Six weeks, it's got flowers on it. Eight weeks, it's got grain. Buckwheat, you do have to be careful with, though. Buckwheat can make any animal, when it's not the, the, the grain, but the foliage, can make them photosensitive, more subject to sunburn. So, good dark-colored birds, not so much a problem, but still you've got parts of the skin that are exposed during the heat of the summer. Photosensitivity is something buckwheat can cause. So, it doesn't mean don't feed them buckwheat, it just means don't plant the whole damn thing in buckwheat. And buckwheat, you seed less than you think you need to, because buckwheat is crazy how productive it is. But, I mean, the things I'd look at, get some clovers established, a whole mix of clovers, rose, yellow, red, crimson, Dutch white, etc. Because those are perennials or strong reseeding biannuals. And so you get a lot of return just by moving the birds off before they take it down to nothing. Okay. Um, as far as your, your summer crops, cowpeas or uh, black-eyed peas are great to include in the mix. Um, in your climate, you can probably include things like some, uh, some oat uh, or some rye even in the summer. It'll do okay for you. Wheat, triticale, things like that. Um, these are all great things for your birds and, and will do well in a rotation, but you're not going to get the ability to keep both sides green and happy and lush at all times. Sooner or later, they're going to take something really down. You're going to have to treat it like a run with deep litter and let the other side come back before you let them back into it. You might be able to pop them back and forth three or four times before you do that, but you've got a limit. If you had five areas... You could probably paddock shift them, essentially, and keep all your areas green, except when they're snow covering them, and, and do very well with that way. But just a two-sided run, and you're not doing a victory guard, you're doing a chicken guard on both sides, you probably get four or five pops back and forth a cycle. And you're going to have to do some of your own research on what will grow that your chickens will eat in your climate, and when those things can be planted, and how long it takes for them to become to fruition for that to work. But uh, you could certainly do it. There'd be no problem doing two crops a year for them. So plant one, let it really come up, deep litter the other one, move them into the big one, and start deep littering the one they've taken down. And you, like I said, you could probably do that in early spring for one side, a late spring for the other side, uh, early summer for the next, a late summer for the next, and then maybe uh, uh, early fall, late fall. You might be able to get six. But in the interim, they're gonna they're gonna kill dead everything in there. So they're not gonna constantly be on it, but they can you can constantly be growing them their next rotation. You don't have that many birds, so if it's a pretty sizable run, they might get three or four weeks before they really hammer it. And if you watch it, you might get them in a, a flip flop for a while. But I think it's gonna be hard. I think three or four. If you can do three or four paddocks. I think that'll work for you. But two, you're going to grow them a nice big lush thing. They're going to kill it. You're going to deep litter it. You're going to move them out. And you're going to replant it like gardens back and forth. Some other plants you can include in the, the seed mix for them. Annual ryegrasses, 
flax, like I said, buckwheat, um, millet, cheap, fast-growing, and they love to eat the seed heads off of that once it produces. Uh, red clover, strawberry clover, alfalfa, landino clover, trefoil. I mean, all of these things will do really well for you. I'd recommend go over to groworganic.com and, and look up the cover crops and just start going through there and find everything that chickens eat. And then figure out the timing, the best time to plant these different things, and build your mixes based on timing. And I would say that at minimum you should be able to do, again, an early spring, a late spring, early summer, late summer, early fall, late fall. And they're just going to have to flip-flop if you only have two. So you have a mix for early spring, your birds are sitting on, on the other side and it's gone. And as soon as you can move them in early spring, you're planting the late spring on the side you just took them out of. And as soon as they come out of early into the late spring, you, you come over and you plant the early summer. And as soon as they come, and as soon as they come out of that, you, you're planting late summer, and then you're planting early fall, late fall. And hopefully you'll get enough green to make it worth your wild. And if you have to hold them a little while in a place with nothing to get a little more growth, it's probably worth it. You're going to have to experiment with it with only two. Again, I think if you could figure out how to do four spots, but you might if, if you're just going to cut them in half and that's going to make it too small, it may not be worth doing. But if you can add two more areas of about the equal size of what you have now somehow and go to a four rotation, you can really make this happen. And they'll never have to take one side all the way down. And you can get more perennial action. You can bring them back in. You can go week one, week two, week three, week four. By week five... The place that they came out of in week one hasn't been grazed for four straight weeks. So that's that's ideal. And the two-sided one, that's the best advice that I can give you. Again, groworganic.com, which is Peaceful Valley Farms. That would be a great place to get more information on the different cover crops that you can use. Next one, uh, snuck a bunch of questions in, but I'm going to rapid fire them and do them fast. One is already very similar to the first, the last question, but with much more space to work with. I've got three acres, mostly lawn, slowly being turned into food production. Soil quality is awesome. You can dig as deep as you want. I hate you, by the way. Anyway, I've got no expectations of doing anything more than supplemental feed. What would be some great choices? either for chopping down and bringing the birds in or something I can paddock shift them over. Uh, everything I said, but focus to the perennial side uh, with the last answer. Go to groworganic.com, start looking at, go into perennial cover crops and start building mixes of clover in there for your chickens. Mixes of alfalfas, medics. Uh, another website you can check out to get seed is called Hearn, H-E-R-N-E, Hearn Seed. I'll put a link to all of these seed suppliers today. They have medics that are hard to find anywhere else and trefoils that are hard to find anywhere else. So I would take a look there. And another place Nick Ferguson turned me on to that has really great pricing on a lot of this stuff is called Hancock Seed. So those are the places I would go. This is the approach I would take if I were you with this great soil. Move the birds into an area. Get the birds to work that area until they've disturbed the soil some. They've eaten it down. They have not wiped it out. They have not scorched earth it, but they have definitely disturbed the soil a bit. Move them and then overseed with these different cover crops. And you're not using them as a cover crop now. You're using them as pasture enhancement. Small amounts of many different seeds. I would also include some things like daikon and turnip. Yes, they're annuals, but they have that deep tap root. They'll continue to improve the soil. They'll reduce irrigation requirements 
and they'll attract earthworms, and some will go to seed and become self-seeding annuals, self-reseeding annuals in your system. And the nice thing about daikon, when you get that self-reseeding, if you like to use daikon, you can end up with, whenever you need a daikon, you just go pull one out of the ground. You don't ever have to plant them and use garden space for them. And they are a great vegetable used properly. Um, but again, the, the sources of seed that I'm going to have you look at for any of these needs, groworganic.com, hern seed, and Hancock seed. And if you start reading about the different seed types and varieties and what they're for and their regions, you can really go a long way toward developing things for yourself. But again, when you're in a pasture situation, which is what you're in, you're not cover cropping, you're overseeding. Cover cropping is, I want to cover everything, I want to choke out everything, and I want it to either be tilled in or go away. A pasture, I don't want that. I don't want a big bare spot where I've choked everything out with buckwheat and cowpea. Little buckwheat and cowpea here and there is okay, but I don't want to do it in large amounts. I want to do perennials that will come back and improve the overall pasture. So maybe perennial ryegrasses I want to get into. Um, and perennial clovers, perennial medics, perennial alfalfas. Uh, biannuals are fine too. They'll go through a full cycle. They'll seed. Chicory, plantain, those are other great things that you can add. Anyway, again, Hancock Seed, Hearn Seed, and GrowOrganic.com for sources and information on all the seed type. As I move on with this question, I've added the links, and I think I misspelled Hearn. It's H-E-A-R-N-E, H-E-A-R-N-E seeds, so Grow Organic, Hearn, and Hancock. Again, links in the show notes for you so you can't not find these questions. Uh, it says... 2A and 2B, cleaning the coop. Poop gives off a smell of ammonia if it's there for a while. Still safe to use bleach. Chickens and bleach, how long before it's safe to put them back in the coop? So if you have ammonia and you mix it with bleach, you get some nasty off vapors. Um, understand when I talk about using bleach to clean the coop. This is what I'm suggesting you do to reiterate what I said. Take out the litter, okay? Or even if you're not, if you're doing deep litter and you're not removing your litter, What I use bleach for is there's poop all over the um, all over the uh, the perches. I take a barbecue grill brush, and again I recommend you put tape around it so you never confuse it with your real barbecue grill brush. And I keep it hanging in the coop, and I use the scraper and the brush to knock all the poop off of the perches, and then I dip that brush in a solution of about a cup of bleach to half a five gallon bucket, so about two and a half cups. Two and a half gallons of water, probably two gallons of water to a cup of bleach. I dip that in there and I brush off the perches. That's all I'm doing. That's gonna. You do that in the daytime. By the time by the time the chickens really want to be back in there, there's nothing to worry about. It, it just it's just to, to to clean and sanitize the place the poop's sitting because they poop on their roost. That's the only thing I use bleach for in there. Okay, so I don't even worry about when they go back in. I leave it up to them, but I'm not scrubbing down the whole coop with bleach, and I'm not dumping bleach on piles of poo and broken down ammonia. That could cause some off-vaporing and not be good. I'm going to consider switching to using hydrogen peroxide versus bleach, and I'll let you know how it works. It's probably a lot safer, it's probably a lot better, and it's probably just as cheap, if not cheaper. And I think I would use that... Um, Probably at half strength, so um, you know, a, a bucket and a, and a bottle of peroxide. Peroxide is less than a buck a bottle, so uh, I think that would work really well. I might even try using it at full strength. It's not going to last very long. It's going to do its thing and it's going to be done. 
And at 3%, it's not going to burn anybody that touches it. It's safe to use on wounds and cuts. I think hydrogen peroxide is one of the greatest things in the world. I should do a show on peroxide and all the things that you can do with peroxide. Peroxide, and I should do a show on vinegar. Those two are amazing, amazing tools. Um, the dirt doctors on a, uh, Howard Garrett, whom if you're in the local Dallas market, you probably know about, uh, really well-known author, kind of the father of the modern organic movement in a lot of ways for organic gardening in the backyard. Um, he just did a whole series on, on, or a whole show or a whole segment of a show on, uh, on peroxide. And I need to wait, get his newsletter with all this stuff in there and take that plus what I know and do a show for you guys on peroxide. Um, next one, mite lice infestation, best safe method of bringing birds back to health. Uh, I'm going to combine that with the next one because the answer is DE, diametaceous earth, the best. Spread it out along their litter, give them some they can dust bath in if they need it, They'll, and they know what to do. The next question, though, is, is food, food grade DE? Isn't DE? Well, just DE. The answer is no. No, they are not the same. There's DE that's just generic, generic DE, and that's like the stuff you use in a pool filter, and there's food-grade DE. Coming out of the ground, yeah, how they're processed and made into a powder for you to use is the, is the big difference. Food-grade DE has to meet certain specifications regarding heavy metal content um, to be considered food-grade. It, it, it must not contain more than 10 milligrams per kilogram of arsenic and no more than 10 milligrams of kilogram of lead per kilogram of lead. And you're like, I don't want any lead or any arsenic. Well, there's lead and arsenic and all kinds of shit. 10 milligrams, okay, is a very small amount. A kilogram is 2.2 pounds, to, to put it in perspective. So... It's a very small amount, and there's going to be arsenic and lead in just about all earth. And diametaceous earth, obviously, is a type of earth. It's actually made from old sea creatures and things like that. The other thing is the way that the DE is treated. Stuff for a pool is calcined, and what that means is it's treated with a very high heat, And this turns the silicon dioxide that's present in the DE into crystalline silica. So stuff that's made like for a pool uh, is about one, 60 to 70% of it has been made into this crystalline silica. Food grade, on the other hand, has less than 1% crystalline silica because this, this treatment's not done to it. So by crystallizing it, a lot of the, the positive effects that it has are ruined. It's fine for filtering a pool and a, and a DE system for a pool, but it's not good for eating and it's not good for killing bugs and all this other stuff. So you want to use food-grade DE. No, not all DE is created equal. Lead, arsenic, other heavy metals being present, and then just the structure being altered. So, no, you shouldn't use pool-grade DE in your chicken coop. Uh, next one comes from Jack. Jack says, how do I raise a nice, friendly rooster? I can't seem to name a nice rooster. My last rooster broke his spur off in my leg. I was just gathering eggs. I turned my back and he attacked. He made good dumplings. Thanks, Jack. Um, again, I talked about this before, but a rooster attacks a person because it's, got a, it's delusional. A rooster either believes you're a threat to the flock or believes you're another rooster that wants to steal his girls. 
It's the only two reasons a rooster will attack you. Now, there are breeds that are known for being nastier than others. I have found Rhode Island Reds um, and Buff Orpingtons to be among the calmest, better roosters for the flock. So far, the White Leghorn Cross roosters have all been cool with me. One was a complete asshole to the other birds, and he is now... Well, he is he already became Cocovin has been processed and has now gone off into the septic system. That was his result for being a jerk to other birds. But I haven't had any of them be really harsh with me. I'd say your best chance of raising a really tame rooster is to hand raise a bird. Um to raise a bird that you spend a lot of time handling, feeding by hand as a baby, if you're having problems and you just can't seem to get it done. To raise that bird as part of, a, of a, a group to be introduced to your flock. Purge your old rooster if you happen to have a different one. And at that point, you should have a bird that's very tame to you and should be not much of a threat. As he matures, you know, he may turn into a little bit of a jerk. But the biggest way I've ever found to defuse this, this, this instinct that a rooster has, I will defend and I will knife anything that comes near my girls and you are another rooster and you want my girls is to feed him when he's being aggressive. So when that bird's displaying aggressive behavior, and kind of the most common aggressive behavior you'll see towards yourself is the same behavior that he'll make toward a hen. This is the low-keyed aggression when he's getting ready to, to mount her. And I don't mean when he just comes up and jumps on her and does it. I'm talking about where he'll come up and he fans his wing to one side, and he moves sideways, and he'll display a lot of times a bird will do that toward you when he's basically saying, hey, I'm a rooster and I breed these girls, you don't, this is my breeding behavior. And what I found with that is if you like kick his ass, you reinforce his delusion. If they'll come up on me with that, I'll get down and I, I just kind of shove them off. I just hit them in the wing gently and push them off like, get your shit together, dude, I'm not tolerating your crap. But then I'll usually reach in one of the feeders or a sack of feed or a feed bucket, pull out some feed, and if I can get them to eat, I'll feed them by hand. See, another rooster would never offer him feed. He might offer a hen feed, but psh, roosters do not offer roosters feed. So when you offer him feed, you break the delusion. That's the best I can advise. I'd like to know what, what breeds you've been working with that you're having this aggression from. I've never had a problem with it, but I've only worked with a you know, few breeds. My understanding is white leghorns, while being one of the best birds for production... And for dealing with the heat, have a tendency to be nasty-ass birds, just mean-ass birds. So maybe going toward a more gentle bird, an Australorp, uh, Americana, uh, Buff Orpington, any of the Orpington breeds, on, honestly, Rhode Island Red, uh, you may find that just going to a calmer breed and spending a lot of time with that bird when it's a puffball. You know, if you have to... Treat it like a cat for its first six weeks. Put it on your lap at night, pet it, and feed it. Uh, I can't see a bird like that ever being aggressive. I've never had to go that far, but I can't see it not working either. And with that, I think we've got this uh, episode wrapped up. If you'd like to submit a question for a future uh, follow-up on the chicken show, I'll have to get enough questions to make doing another show valid, so please send your questions if you have them. Uh, send them to chicken question for Jack. And I will, uh, I will consider doing another show about this. I do want to point out that there was a great comment on the blog 
about a different device for brooding and incubation. I'm out of time for today. I have to get ready for my interview this afternoon with the guest for tomorrow. So I'm not going to cover that. I did plan on putting it in the show. I don't remember who did it. But it's a device that the chickens huddle under for incubation. It all, that, that post on the blog also had a lot of other great subjects. Again, I'm sorry I don't remember your name off the top of my head uh, who posted that. But I want you to know I'm going to include your uh, comment in a future show. Maybe not a chicken-dedicated show. Maybe just a general feedback show. Because I, I thought there was a lot of great advice there. And if I had had the time, I was going to include it today. There was also a call on my killing setup. Uh, for, for slaughter and uh, butchering of chickens. I may do that in a future um, show, uh, just a call-in show, but I pretty much explain that in the second uh, part of the, uh, of the, the, you know, the, uh, the chicken series, so you can check it out for that. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with a, another survival podcast episode, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.